Jefferson County, August 1980. 19-year-old Timothy Hack and his girlfriend Kelly Drew attend a wedding at a popular establishment called the Concord House. A night of celebration soon turned to feelings of trepidation when it was realized the following day that Kelly and Tim never returned home. After a two-month search, Kelly and Tim's decomposed bodies are located in a farmer's field, clearly the victims of a brutal homicide. After the investigation grows cold, three decades would pass before the case would be cracked and their killer, Ed Edwards, would be brought to justice. Unveiling a life of crime, some people believe, makes him the most prolific serial killer in American history. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 22 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mickey? You didn't sound as disappointed when you I'm said not disappointed your other host. love my co-host. Oh, I love Mickey you, too. Mickey Sanders. I'm Mickey Sanders, and I love Scott Whitman. So we are heading into um festival season i guess conference season we're heading into springtime summertime nice weather season thank god 80 degrees coming up this week in the badger state so we have some appearances that we're going to be making that i'm going to shout out again so the first one coming up this month later this month april 29th so i will be at the ridges and rivers book festival in Viroqua, wisconsin saturday april 29th that's taking place at the Western Technical College from 9 to 4.30. So come on out and see me. I will be uh, signing books. I'll be giving talks, uh, some readings around town, but I'll definitely be at the Western Technical College Saturday the 29th from 4, uh, excuse me, from 9 to 4.30, and I will be in various places around the city um, the Friday night prior to that, which I'm not quite sure all those places are going to be yet. Also coming up May 2nd in beautiful lacrosse, Mickey and I are going to be at the Radisson giving a private talk on the bizarreness of our state. And ourselves. To state officials, technically important people are going to be listening to us talk about this podcast. Good luck to all. As, as we said, that is a private showing. That's a private talk. We do hope to record that, however, and throw that up on our social media. Also, and you can come stand outside the building and we'll give autographs if that's... 
if that's something you feel like we'll doing. be done by twelve fifteen. we got all day <laughs> come on out with your signs hang outside the front door of the yeah, radisson pick at the place That'd be great. for what reason i don't know do not protest please do not we're not that bad we're not that bad especially there don't right. protest also on may 11th uh i will be at the neville public museum in green bay giving a uh, dinner presentation on my book, Finding Dairyland. They're closing out their 2022-2023 dinner presentation season. Uh, That's a Thursday night, May 11th. Uh, Tickets for that registration is available on nevillepublicmuseum.org. And you might think I'm biased, but I say it pretty straight. These books are actually good. He actually knows what he's doing. It really does help you in the editing process when you can show your manuscript to somebody and they can rip it to fucking shreds <laughs> if, they, if they feel comfortable doing that. Right. And I can bounce ideas off of Mickey Where are the people and, that and he'll you? tell me. Yeah, right. It's a partnership. Yeah. Now, a couple of nudes and notes for today. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, one of the biggest stories in the country today which is the unfortunate death of two police officers in Barron County from an incident that happened yesterday uh, afternoon. Uh, I'll just read a part of an article here from the uh, Wisconsin State Journal. It says, Two police officers killed in a traffic stop shootout in northwestern Wisconsin on Saturday, including one whose career began in Stoughton, had stopped the gunman's vehicle because he had a warrant out for his arrest, the State Department of Justice said Monday. Kelly Breidenbach, 32, of Chetek, and Hunter Shield, 23, of the Cameron Police Department, had pulled over the vehicle driven by Glenn Douglas Perry, 50, after they received a report of concerning behavior. Gunfire ensued, leaving Breidenbach and Shield dead. Perry was taken to a hospital and later died, DOJ said. The reason for Perry's warrant was not immediately available in online court records. The new Auburn resident had pleaded no contest to disorderly conduct and domestic abuse in May 2020, according to court records. It should also be said that the Barron County District Attorney's Office, led by Brian Wright, asked the court to dismiss the misdemeanor charges of battery and bail jumping against Perry at the time. Perry had no criminal history outside of Wisconsin, according to court records. So this was just a random... Turn, what violence. should have been a normal car getting pulled over, right? A normal traffic stop. Why did the guy have a gun? No idea. And I mean, he, no so criminal much, so, record otherwise. No criminal record outside of Wisconsin other than these charges that he had in Wisconsin on domestic battery, which were which well, were dropped. So, right, he was accused of, of abuse, but not even gun-related. So the fact that he's driving along with a gun and now a 30, haywire. 32-year-old and a 23-year-old. 32 and 23 these police officers that are now gone. But it was just a random, I mean, because not a random stop. It was just a, a routine stop, and the guy shoots them both. At. There's obviously more details, and we'll follow up as we usually do with these kinds of stories. But Sure, and you know, we don't know a lot of what's going on. Actually, his name, Glenn Douglas Perry, was just, all re- we know, it was really. just released like two hours ago. Right. We didn't know his name before then. As so. we were talking before the episode is when we found out. Right, so... Not a whole lot is known quite yet or has been has been disclosed. Um, we just know that they pulled the car over based on, quote, concerning behavior, and he got out and started shooting. Now, we, he de- he's dead, too. Good. You know, well, not, well, not to sound not like an ass. Not, not to sound like an ass. Well, you don't but, even sound like an ass, but it's, it's a little quick to jump to conclusions because we don't know what he was going through either or what was said or all that's that true. stuff. But that's true. 
But and and we don't know what did he die in the shootout? Did he kill himself? Right. We don't quite know. And maybe how he, that all maybe happened. he we have no idea what put him in this state of mind to shoot two cops that pulled him over for a random or routine pullover. But yeah, there, there's just a lot of details that need to be understood before we can start jumping to conclusions. But you know, any anytime we hear this news, as you know, we've mentioned before, Mickey and I are big big supporters of. Of police, it's not an easy job, and and and, this, uh, and they get a bad rap. It's not an easy job, and people want to jump to conclusions about them. And everybody wants to hate the cops, but they are protecting and serving us. To, to hear that two young cops who were just trying to do right by their society got killed for a, a quick pullover, it's it's just sad. The governor offered his condolences to the families and said he planned to sign executive orders lowering U.S. and Wisconsin flags in their honor once funeral arrangements have been made. So, and as you said, it became. Uh, national news. This so is all over the place. It's yeah. a big deal. It's, it's it's a big deal. Another interesting thing that uh, that we wanted to mention is another cold case has been solved in Wisconsin due to DNA. It says Wisconsin senior gets ten years for 1986 killing, county's oldest unsolved case. It says a Racine man was sentenced to ten years in prison Monday for the 1986 killing of a young woman whose body was found in a swamp at a Green Bay Nature Center. Lou Griffin, 67, pleaded no contest January 27th in Brown County to the charge of homicide by reckless conduct, and a jury found him guilty. Griffin originally was charged in October 2020 with the first-degree intentional homicide in Lisa Holstead's killing. Her body was found in 1986. Holstead's slang has been Brown County's oldest unsolved murder case. It says Griffin was identified as a subs- as a suspect in Holstead's slang after the Green Bay police sent DNA evidence found on her body to a company that performs forensic genetic genealogy testing. That testing provided information on the suspect's heritage and possible relatives. So th- here we go. This is familial DNA again, we which keep is talking about it's that. cracking cases left and right. Even and, like 40, 50, 60 year old yes. cases, right? Griffin was eventually placed under police surveillance, and DNA was collected from cigarettes and beer cans he had discarded, matched the DNA collected <laughs> in the murder case. So they were stoking this guy out Damn. and running to uh, trash cans and picking up cigarette butts. I've had plenty of beer cans and a few cigarette butts myself. I hope I don't do anything that I don't remember. It says Griffin told investigators he might have had sex with Holstead, but denied killing her. <laughs> right? Sure. Sure. Ladies' man. Right. They all are, especially the serial killer type. Now, he only got 10 years, which maybe because he's 67 years old, but he he murdered somebody. We know that he murdered somebody. You know, I don't know why they, did they cut a deal with this guy? I mean, they have him dead to rights in DNA. Yeah. You know, so why would you give this guy, why isn't he in jail for the rest of his life? 67 years old. Right. He it gets 10 years for the, murder. There's more details out there or there, something. Right. So there, there might be more that we don't know. But or he has it, knowledge of somebody that they don't want to release point is point is we just solved another not we not mickey and i (laughs) i'm pretty sure we should get some credit (laughs) point is another cold case has been solved in wisconsin dealing with familial dna it's happening all over the place technology's gotten to the point where they're going back on these cold cases that haven't been solved for decades which is great unfortunately a lot of the people that wanted closure 30 40 50 years ago and it probably doesn't help much but it's still nice to close these cases and figure out what happened. One more thing we wanted to talk about here is Wisconsin Death Trip, the cult classic book, Wisconsin Death Trip. Turned Static X, I just saw them last Sunday. How'd it go? How's the new guy sound? He sounds awesome. Actually, it was it was a really good concert at Epic, but that's not really what you're talking about, I guess. No. They did sound great. 
Static X has See, Static an album. X, they're awesome. They sound great. Called Wisconsin Death Trip, but that's it's named after the book. That's really not exactly is. what we're, t- we're talking about. The actual book, which is celebrating its I don't know how a book celebrates, but Wisconsin Death Trip <laughs> is its 50 year anniversary of being published. It was published in 1973, and Doug Moe, who is a columnist in Madison, very well known throughout the state, uh, wrote an article about it, and it just it just turned 50 like earlier this month, like April 3rd. Um, and the article says, leave it to Dwight Garner, the venerable New York Times book critic, to pick up on the 50th anniversary of a celebrated book that has many Madison ties and hasn't lost its ability to shock and provoke. It's a haunting backdoor into history, Garner wrote, and a raw experiment in feeling. It has never been, as the fissures in American life deepen, more relevant. While anything but uplifting, Wisconsin Death Trip has undeniable power. Nobody has produced a book, essentially a dark montage, quite like it before we did an episode on this book it's one of our most popular episodes episode three of badger bazaar we cover wisconsin death trip and kind of the legacy of it and exactly what it was it's as this says it's a book like you'll never see again it's news snippets from 1890 to 1910 interspersed with very dark gothic photographs from the black river falls community um, and here, here we are, 50 years after its publication. It's still very well known. It's still very popular. It has influenced lots of artists, as Mickey just said. Right. Static X has an album named Wisconsin. And they're Death not Trip. even originally from here, but they're a pretty big band. And yeah, they, their biggest album still to date. I, I remember that, like you say, our third episode. I remember the feeling I had from having read the book and watched the video. It, it's a haunting feeling that 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 book just had an effect on me that most other books I read. It's just different. It's so different, and we, we discussed that quite a bit in that episode. There's a documentary that came out, uh, I think in the late 80s, that was based on the book. It's, it's not really a documentary. It's more of a re a recreation of some of the things that the book talks about. To video, and, right. Things that happened in Black River Falls. Not only in Black River Falls, but there's some things throughout the state. Um, but it really tells related type it thing really like tells a story of what was going on in Wisconsin at that time. And throughout the country, to be honest. It was just, this was... A, a microcosm of what was going on throughout the rest of the country, too. This article goes on. It says, One final instance of how Wisconsin death trip continues to resonate. As Garner noted in his recent New York Times piece, a psychiatric asylum figures prominently in the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Cormac McCarthy's new novel, Stella Maris. Where is the asylum located? Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Cor- dun, dun, dun. Cormac McCarthy... If you're familiar with him, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, the greatest living novelist we have today in my lifetime. Haven't you mentioned him before, even? I don't know if I've mentioned him before. No Country for Old Men. He wrote that oh, book. Wrote right. the book that the Huge movie is based movie, on. Right, right. He wrote a book called Blood Meridian. Amazing, amazing book. Very graphic. Not for the squeamish. Not for the faint of heart. But that just goes to show his writing ability. A wonderful, to wonderful book. paint a picture book. like that with words is it's, it's pretty impressive. The Road was also a, uh, one of his novels. I think that came out in the early 2000s. It was also made into a movie with Viggo Mortensen. I remember hearing Very dystopian that. feel of a book. It's very good. Uh, but he hadn't come out with anything since then. 
So these two books that it came out, one called The Passenger, one called Stella Maris, came out last, the last that summer. That was a pretty big seller, right? And in those books, or in the second book, the asylum is located in Black River Falls, and that is not a coincidence. I am very uh, much looking forward to reading. I didn't know this until That's I read this. one of the this. few books that you've mentioned that you haven't read. Man, I, I have I not read, to to I have read, not read these. Both Cormac McCarthy's newest, newest works I have not read. I've read a lot of Cormac McCarthy but not these two. So I definitely will be checking those out. And again, if you want to learn more about Wisconsin Death Trip and you have not uh, heard our episode check number three of Badger Bazaar, and that'll give you a good little synopsis of it. And then we fully encourage you to go out and and take a look at that book and uh, do some research of it. And the video, it's actually good to watch too. Excellent stuff. So August 13th, 2009, a rather grotesque-looking, sickly old man is rolled into a courtroom in Jefferson County, Wisconsin. Large, sickly old man. Right. Jefferson County, right in the middle of Milwaukee and Madison. I-94 pretty much bisects it. He's handcuffed to his wheelchair. He's breathing oxygen through a tube in his nose. Pushing 400 pounds, probably. He weighed 300 pounds, roughly, at 5'8". And he's 76 years old. He's already suffering from leukemia, diabetes, heart disease. His name is Edward Wayne Edwards. Ed, Ed. And he's just been extradited back to Jefferson County from Louisville, Kentucky, where he was arrested. And he was brought up here to be brought up on charges of a 29-year-old cold case at the time. The double murder of 19-year-old Timothy Hack and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Kelly Drew, who went missing from Jefferson County in 1980. Now, for many years, this this unsolved homicide was known as the Sweetheart Murders, right? It, it made the rounds on TV, you know, I, the ID network, cold case files, that time, that type of thing. It was a n- nationally known case that you would see on these TV shows every now and again. It obviously gripped this small community for 30 years. It was Jefferson County's only unsolved murder on the books. So Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew were high school sweethearts. Obviously, that's where the sweetheart murders comes from. They graduated from Ford Atkinson High School together in 1979. Tim was a dairy farmer. His family was dairy farmers. He participated in tractor pull races quite frequently. Kelly had just graduated from beauty school. And <laughs> Sounds like a movie. Right. Is this Grease we're talking about? Well, she didn't drop out. That's she true. did graduate. Beauty school dropout. No graduation day for you. School there was every expectation by those who knew them that they would eventually get married uh, and have a family of their own. But on August 9th, 1980, uh, they were at a wedding for one of Tim's friends at the Concord House in Jefferson County. The Concord House was a wedding hall, reception hall, in Jefferson County, Watertown area, just south of Watertown. We're about 40 miles or so west of Milwaukee. Um, Concord House is still there. I think I said was a reception hall. It's still there, still there, still in business, still kind of the place to go in that area. So Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew were last seen going outside at about 11 o'clock at that wedding. I'm not sure if they were leaving, if they had said goodbyes to everybody and they were taken off for the night, or if they had just stepped outside the building, I'm not sure, but they were last seen at about 11 o'clock going outside at the Concord House. 
Now, nobody thinks anything about this, right? Nobody, you know, they're 19 years old. They're, they're a couple. They go, they're leaving a wedding. Nobody realizes anything is wrong until the next day when their families notice that they didn't come home. Like Tim's, Tim's parents notice that Tim's not home. Kelly's parents notice as, that Kelly's not home. So obviously their, their families are calling each other. Where's Tim? Where's Kelly? They don't know, right? So now they have a problem on their hands. So they go searching. And they obviously go to the first place that you would at that time. You go to the Concord house, and there's Tim's car uh, still parked in the parking lot. His wallet and some cash were still there in the car. The car was locked, uh, but his items were still there on the front seat in easy view. Uh, so now they're missing. So just to give you a little a little vibe of what was going on, in the town there, a, a newspaper article from the time, August 20th, 1980, so about 10 days out of where they went missing. It says, disappearance of couple, a puzzle for Fort Atkinson residents. This is right in the Fort Atkinson area, obviously. It says, quote, it's been 10 days since Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew were reported missing, and many of their friends and other young persons in and around the southeastern Wisconsin community are nervous. Young couples have become leery about going out alone, they are double dating, triple dating, going out in groups. Hack and Drew, both 19, disappeared after attending a wedding reception for one of Hack's friends. The next morning, Hack's locked car was found in the parking lot outside a Concord dance hall where the reception was held. His jacket, wallet, and checkbook were in the car. Despite a widespread search, there has been no trace of the couple. Officials say they suspect foul play. People are afraid. Even the guys are worried, said Sandra Lee, a friend of Miss Drew. It used to be just girls, but when it happens to a couple, it even makes you scared to walk from the car to the house. This has the whole town bugged. Sheriff Keith Muller said, We're working on everything we have. We have a few leads we can't divulge right now, but so far nothing has turned up. The families of the missing couple have not received any ransom demands. Friends and family members discount any speculation that the teenagers might have eloped just a few days after this article came out any speculation that there might have been whether they eloped quickly went away as some of kelly's clothes were found in a roadside ditch about three miles from concord house so her pants were found and they'd been clearly cut from the bottom to the top right so they're they're found they're cut from the ankles to the waist like so they'd been clearly been cut off of her so for a reason the town is terrified and about two months later in october 1980 the bodies the decomposed bodies of kelly drew and timothy hack are found they're found by hunters um alongside a, a country road in a field um about eight miles from the concord house she was actually the body was actually found a day later after hack he was stabbed to death She'd been found strangled and evidently raped. They found the clothes, which clearly, you know, show foul play. Now they have the bodies, which were found by hunters. Uh, as Mickey said, she'd been tied up and strangled, and he'd been stabbed to death. So for, for 30 years, this heinous murder goes unsolved, right? They don't know who does it. For 30 years, until Ed Edwards is finally charged with the crime in 2009. And uh, DNA does confirm it is him. As Mickey said, there was, he obviously raped Kelly. There was semen found on her clothes, which matched Ed Edwards. So there's no question who did the crime anymore. So now he's, he's brought back to Wisconsin. 
um, and he's charged with this murder. And this the, the arrest here would be the starting point of telling the story of what kind of monster this guy turns out. He did to be. a lot through a lots of areas. This guy was all over the country. Now his name was brought up to Jefferson County on a tip. Like somebody calls in a tip and said, "Hey, you know that cold case you have? Um, you might want to check this guy out." Now we'll, we'll get into who that who called in that tip later because it's it's important. Very intriguing. Who but the tip was from. Let's get into who the hell is that Edwards? The serial killer you never heard of. Now most of what we know about Edwards is from a book, and it's a book that he wrote. He wrote an autobiography published in 1972 called "Metamorphosis of a Criminal." The True Life Story of Ed Edwards, which you can actually still purchase some copies on Amazon. Before 2009, it was just some cheap old book. And there's a few other books written about him, too, that would give you a lot of information. So this guy that no one's ever heard of has become much more well-known since his passing. So before 2009, this book, Metamorphosis of a Criminal, was just some some cheap old book uh, that a guy named Ed Edwards wrote. Ed Edwards. But Edward Wayne Edwards, right there, right off the bat, it sounds like you might have some issues. But now, because of who he is, you can still find copies online, but they're like 300 bucks. People are obviously trying to, <laughs> trying to, trying to profit people, on... Oh, right. That's crazy. ...on uh, the autobiography that, that Mr. Uh, Mr. Edwards wrote. But, but in it, obviously, he describes his life, you know, and he's writing this in 1972, so... It's only half of his life at this point. And he's he's describing his childhood, which is horrible. Okay, now, obviously we know who this guy is now. And he's a compulsive liar. And he's a godforsaken person. And you have to take that into account when you read this autobiography, right? But since he's been in prison now, since 2009, researchers have been poring over this book. And a lot of what he says about his childhood is verifiable, right? You can check this out with court records and documents and such. So, in, you know, where we know where he was, for the most part, when he was a child. So a lot of what he talks about um, growing up, which was not a good time, uh, is, is kind of verifiably true. But as you'll find out, he also was a chronic liar. So unfortunately, even with, with the truth that comes out of his mouth, it's hard to believe anything he says. Right. There, there's, even in this autobiography, there's still, there's discrepancies all over the place, and there's still so many unknowns with this guy, starting with the very beginning of his story. Obviously, to become as, as messed up of a monster as this person has, you've gone through something, most likely as a child, as we've discussed many times before in our episodes. That doesn't justify it. That doesn't give you a free pass to, to become what he was. It's just somewhat of an explanation as to what would cause somebody to go this haywire. No doubt. Now, again, there, there's a lot of unknowns with this guy, again, starting with the very beginning of his story, which is his birth date. Even that... Right off the bat, people we don't are, know what's true. We're not real sure. Now, it's believed he was born on June 14th, 1933. He says that, his family says that, most researchers today, really from the 1960s on believe that he was born in 1933 there is a train of thought that he was actually born in 1928 may 30th 1928 to lillian myers in akron ohio as also as scott said 
Otherwise, June 14th, 1933. Now, the reason That's of this... a five-year discrepancy. The reason of the discrepancy is, is likely because this guy was always using fake IDs. He was always giving aliases. He was never using his real name. So it seems like all throughout the 1950s when he was arrested, which was a lot, all of his birth dates say 1928. Well, and since his birthright... His mother, as we'll discuss, is not around much longer, and neither are anybody else in his bloodline. So then it's just foster homes and and that kind of stuff, which ends up leading to a lot of the horrible treatment he got. With no bloodline, it's tough to tell. It's hard, it's hard to trace back anybody's life. Again, conventional wisdom says that he was born in 1933. Most researchers today believe he was born in 1933, so I guess that's what we will go with. You know, researching this guy is a chore. Ugh. <laughs> There's dates wrong. This is a serial killer, so I'm, I'm just geeked about it anyway because of my weird interest in, in abnormal behavior. But at some point, I just became frustrated and didn't even want to do it anymore because it was just so hard to do. It's because because he, he never told the truth. He always had fake IDs. So many documents are on him are wrong. And because uh, other people just find what they read one time and, and right, just go right. with it. Right, Re- Reporting today on him is wrong because, right, as Mickey said, they parrot each other. So they're parroting wrong information. So you really have to, if you're interested in finding out about this the guy, truth, you need to dig in. you got to dig in deep, and it's frustrating. Born June 14th, 1933, to a single mother, Lillian Myers, in Akron, Ohio. We're led to believe that his he was born Charles Edward Myers on May 30th, 1928, to Lillian Myers in Akron, Ohio, with... The father not being known. He claims to be born Charles Murray Myers on June 14, 1933, which was the date before his unmarried mother's 17th birthday. And again, the father is unknown. No matter what resource I looked at, they don't know who the father was, period. So. Right. I don't think mom knows who the father was. I'm sure. It sounds like she wouldn't. So he's born He's born to Lillian Myers in 1933. He's born as Charles Murray. Now, he's barely two years old. And his mom gets arrested um, because she stole money from her employer. She was a housekeeper, and she wound up swiping $100 from her employer, you know, whoever she was cleaning for at the time. And they wound up throwing her in prison. Sentenced to larceny charges for one to seven years, depending on her behavior, which seems like a strange sentence. So this was in 1935 when Charles was barely two years old. So his mom gets sent to prison. So he goes to live with his aunt his mother's sister, Mary Myers, and her husband, Fred Edwards. Now, Mom gets out of prison after 14 months. So Lillian gets out. Little Charles goes back and lives with her. But in 1938, Lillian, apparently distraught over a breakup, shoots herself in front of Charles, in front of her five-year-old son. So she shoots herself in the abdomen. She winds up dying of sepsis several months later. So she lingered. She shoots herself in the abdomen, winds up dying of sepsis. Sepsis, which is also known as septicemia, which is caused by a gunshot, the clinical name for blood poisoning by bacteria. It's a blood infection. Right. Charles is five years old. His mom dies after shooting herself in the, in the stomach. Um, now he's, he goes back to live with Mary and Fred Edwards, and they formally adopt him. And not only do they formally adopt him, they change his name to Edward Wayne Edwards. Sure, because that'll why that'll, that'll help him. Why? Why are you doing that? I I understand you. Because he's already messed up, so why not just give him a reason? You adopt him. You give him your last name. That's fine. 
but why are you changing? He's he's five years old. He's Charles to him. Right. And why he's, why give him this? You have the same name twice. I mean, that's just uh, you're waiting to be bullied and beaten up. So who knows why they give him uh, a new first and, and middle name? But so at, he's he's now living with Mary and Fred. Now, after two years in 1940, Mary makes the decision to send Ed to an orphanage. After years of suffering from MS, multiple sclerosis, Mary decided to do this because she was on the verge of dying. Right. And a lot of the research that you, you look at will say that it was because of he's an out-of-control kid. He's an out-of-control seven-year-old. And that might have something to do with it. But he says in his book that Mary was dying of MS and Fred was an alcoholic. She found out in 1937, which is not long after this all happened, that she had MS. And, and like you say, if she was going to be leaving the son because of death to Fred, it wasn't going to be a good situation because Fred was a raging alcoholic. Yeah, she he, said it herself. So he And he says that in his book. So it seems like he was correct on this, that it was, Mary thought that he just couldn't be taken care of in their home. So she made a decision to bring him to uh, Parmadale Catholic Orphanage. In 1940, when he's seven years old. In Parma, Ohio. Now, we've all heard stories and stereotypes of treatment in orphanages, especially in the 1940s. Right. These were not good places to be. It's a hard knocks life. Right. I'm just saying. Ed talks about a lot of this treatment that he received where he was. And, and, and you know, he talks about being at the orphanage. And he says in his book, he says, quote, failing to say yes, ma'am, no ma'am, or yes sister, no sister, invoked punishment. You had to bend over a chair and were given several cracks on the rear with a stick. Your alternative was to hold out your hands to be whacked. Sometimes you'd be cracked on the palms, other times on the knuckles. If you cried out, the punishment was extended. I learned right away that if you were unfortunate enough to be a bedwetter, you were in serious trouble. During the first weeks that I wet the bed, they gave me a tablespoon of salt every evening before bedtime, saying it would dry up my water. Sure, that sounds right. When this didn't work, no kidding, they made me pick <laughs> up all my wet bedding in the morning, put on a pair of swimming trunks, and stand under a cold shower holding my bed linen while the other children went off For the record, since you can't see us, I've been getting the willies for about five minutes since we've been talking about this. Now, he goes on to describe all kinds of relentless abuse from uh, staff, from other kids at the orphanages bullying him. Undoubtedly, some of this is true. Sure. Yeah. Well, it would explain the path we're explaining later on. It's And eventually, it says he was actually thrown out of the orphanage because, as Scott mentioned, of his so-called out-of-control behavior. In year 1945, supposedly, he was thrown out. He actually, so he, he runs away in 1945. Now, he's 12 years old. He runs away, and he goes back to, to Mary and Fred's, and now his grandmother is living there. So he's back there, but Mary is very frail. Mary's dying. So he runs away, and the orphanage says, you're not coming back here. So they throw him out. A lot of out of control. You know, 12 years old, he's out of control. The orphanage is saying, we can't take care of this guy. Mary's dying, and she does die. She dies a few months after he runs away. Again, as Mickey said before, we're not making excuses for the No, we're the not justifying anything. It's just... But people become this way because of things that happen early in their lives. It, I don't, I don't believe people are born evil, so maybe they are. There are cases that I've seen that possibly that's what's going on because even with uh, supportive family, people go haywire. There are traces that prove 
as to why this guy would have gone in the wrong direction. That doesn't justify his actions because lots of people who have been through this kind of horrible treatment as a child and still found a better path. But often with serial killers, this is the kind of treatment they get and they just end up going in the wrong direction because they don't look at things as well as most people do. Right. When you, when you look at the backgrounds of serial killers, repeatedly in their backgrounds are abundant abuse and neglect. And they don't handle it well, and obviously, obviously, and they just go here. in the wrong direction. Right. So here he is. He's 12 years old. He's got two mothers dead, right? I mean, and he was so confused as a toddler that he thought his real mother was his aunt. Right. You know, why wouldn't you? You're being well, shipped away from both. And you're, you know, you're you in watch or die when you're two years old anyway. I mean, that's got to, whether it, you understand what's going on or you remember it later on anyway, it's going to have some kind of impact. So he's 12, two mothers are dead, no father figure to speak of, right? He's shipped off to an orphanage that he the runs away from. The world couldn't give a crap less about you. You know, no no fault of his own. He's 12, right? Life didn't start out too well for, uh, for Ed Edwards here. So now he's heading into his teens, right? He's 12, 13, no real supervision. He runs roughshod over his grandma. Now he starts stealing things, stealing from stores, stealing other people's property. And he starts lighting fires, which is something he's done throughout his life. He had a crush on an older lady in his neighborhood, and he talks about, uh, you know, she would have a friend come over, a male friend, and he would visit her every night, which made him jealous. So he firebombed the guy's car with a Coke bottle filled with turpentine. That's how I respond to stuff. He would retweet, He would routinely pull fire alarms whenever he was in public buildings because he loved the response of the fire trucks and just, you know, just the, the panic and the chaos that it caused. And he would write in his book, quote, indirectly I was being noticed since I caused all the hubbub. They were stoking the fires of my desires for attention. Which actually was kind of astute on his point. I mean, I don't know that he was analyzing himself, but it would make sense that that guy would want some attention. Of course, he wasn't getting it anywhere else. Right. Now, again, when, when, you, when you look at the history or the backgrounds of a lot of people who turn into serial killers, and unfortunately, there's a lot of them to look into. Yeah. There's repeated behaviors while they're growing up, and two of the big ones are bedwetting and lighting fires, right. and this guy's got both of them. Right, and right I, here. as we said... This is how I'm going to get it. There's no such thing as negative attention when you're that downtrodden and just think the world couldn't stand you less. Now, when he's 16, he's still living in Akron. When he's 16 years old, he goes through psychological testing. And so this psychological testing is done in 1950. I don't, you know, however thorough they were back then. I'm sure, you know, they did what they could. It wasn't what it is now, that's for sure. But, you know, so his psychological profile comes back here and it says, quote, Ed Edwards is a highly disturbed individual who needs psychiatric help. This will probably be impossible, since it would take a very long-term treatment to make any change. It is a case of a boy who has multiple difficulties, most of which it is too late to correct. Already at 16, they're claiming that. A positive directional program, such as a service, may offer him much, but we really cannot hope for too much. Wayne is a neurotic and possibly psychotic. His behavior is definitely psychopathic. And I think back then they were more willing to give up than they well, are Well, they certainly now. did on this guy. Well, this, and the, again, it comes down to one person's, ultimately one person's opinion. This is an expert. I'm not trying to discredit this person, but uh. turns out they were correct. But at 16 years old, it sounds a little, he's not even technically an adult, and they're already basically saying that, He's too far gone. She says he's a lost cause, yeah. Yeah. So she calls a 16-year-old a psychopath, 
already. And says he's a lost cause. Keep this kid out of society. That's basically what she just Which said. Which means everyone else is going to give up on him as well, as they already have it also to this means, point. It also means that they knew. It but, means, it but means what are you going to do knew, about it? Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy, though? I mean, yeah, the signs were bad. He was pretty far along. But possibly with any kind of good support at this point, it could have been stopped from becoming a serial killer. I don't disagree with you. And, but, and what are you supposed to do? But with that kind of label, with that kind of label, they're just going he's lumped into a and he's given up on. This like kid, you said, what is he supposed this to kid's do? Kid's 16 years old. What is he going to Nothing do? is going to help him get him out of society. And then he's sent to reform school in Pennsylvania. Right. So he so he keeps getting in trouble and again, he, as Mickey said, he's shipped off to to reform school in Pennsylvania. Reform, reform school, school is prison. It's for, a prison for children. Right. Now, Until they're old enough that they can release him and, and then hope that they don't become the monsters that he does. What happens is he actually takes the psychologist's advice when she said going into the service might help him, but probably not. So the reform school allows you to leave if you go into the service. And he did. He went into the Marines. He joins the Marines at 17 years old. Camp Lejeune. Have you heard of that? <laughs> Too much. A couple of emails every Oh, my God. Every hour or two? Every, if, if not more. Now, this is right during the Korean War. Ed wants to go to war. Like I mean, here, here you go. He's 17 years old. He's looking forward to going to the most chaos that people can put on this earth, really. <laughs> right. But because he's a minor, they won't allow him to partake in combat, so they wouldn't send him over there. He wouldn't they wouldn't send him to Korea. So now he comes home to Akron on leave. But he goes AWOL. He never goes back. He figured out quickly, as much as he was trying to do the right thing, he figured out quickly the military wasn't suitable for him. At least the Marines weren't. Now, even though he, he absconded, he, he went AWOL, he didn't go back. He would continue to wear his uniform in Akron, and he would do this to gain people's respect, to gain their trust. Everybody respects a man in in uniform, right? But while he was wearing that uniform, he was cashing forged checks, he was stealing cars, and he was committing crimes, and he tried to mask it by wearing the armed services uniform. Now, this is a pattern this guy's got throughout his life, continually, uh, as we talked about at the top, impersonated federal agents. Chronic liar. Fake IDs, chronic liar, right. So he steals one of these cars and he brings it, drives it down to Florida. And he's finally dishonorably discharged out of the military. In 1951, winds up getting arrested in Florida for all kinds of crimes. Again, cashing checks, stealing cars. And he gets sent back to prison in Ohio where he does three years. Now, in 1954, he returns to Akron. He was doing odd jobs as a ship docker, a handyman, and like you said, odd crimes, typically including forging checks. Basically, everything he did was lying. It's almost like he had no identity at this point. Right. So he returns to Akron in 1954, and he, he, again, he resumes burglarizing houses, stealing cars, starting fires, and he's eventually arrested again. And on April 5th, 1955, he's arraigned on burglary charges in the city jail in Akron. And while he's waiting with two jailers to be re- to be transported to a, the county jail, he makes a beeline for the front door of the courthouse and he gets away. As you said, he gets caught a lot, 
But he's really good at escaping, too. He does that quite a bit. He, yeah, he does get caught virtually everywhere he goes, almost. He, he's the Houdini of, of criminals, because he gets caught constantly, so how good is he? But he's constantly escaping. So he, he simply ran off. He just ran away from the bailiff that was, you know, supposed to be holding this guy there. And he and again, he takes off to Florida. And he kind of disappears for a little while. And the next time he comes up later that year is in Idaho Falls, Idaho. So th- this guy's all over the place. Now, while he's out west in Idaho, he marries his first wife, Jeanette White. And they're kind of uh, traveling around the country, almost giving off like a Bonnie and Clyde vibe. They support themselves by robbing gas stations. They're eventually caught in Billings, Montana in 1956. And while he's in prison in, in, in Montana, or while he's in jail in Montana, he's connected to and admits to robberies in Seattle, Spokane, Reno, Oakland, Sacramento, Portland, Billings, and Great Falls, Montana. He's committing crimes in every city he he's goes He's traveling. To. I admire that. Yeah. He's, he's, he's quite the, the road trip here. He's getting around. Now, eventually, he's given a 10-year sentence. And Jeanette, uh, who was pregnant at the time, claims that she was being held against her will the whole time. She's eventually let go and is granted a divorce. And she would eventually remarry um, and basically ostracize Edwards from her life at that point. But she did have that child, which was Ed's son. Now, it should be noted here that while was while Ed was in Great Falls, while we know today that he was in Great Falls, Montana, there was a double murder that occurred there in January of 1956. The double murder of 18-year-old Lloyd Dwayne Bogle and his 16-year-old girlfriend Patty Kalitsky. Now they had driven to a like a lover's lane, a secluded area by by a park in Great Falls. 18-year-old Lloyd Bogle was found right outside the car with his hands tied behind his back. Shot twice in the head. Kalitsky was found seven miles away at the bottom of an embankment, obviously raped, and also shot in the head. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Now, of that of that 10-year sentence, Ed serves this at Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge, Montana. Remember that name, Deer Lodge. That might come up later. It will. That's why we're saying it. <laughs> now, he's paroled after only three years. And he gets out in 1959. With five years of probation. But he's immediately rearrested by Portland authorities. So right when he gets out of prison in Deer Lodge. Sure. He's immediately rearrested. I've been free for 30 seconds. I got to do something wrong. In Portland for uh, crimes that he committed there earlier. So they send him back to Portland. um, And he gets, as Mickey said, five years supervised probation. He doesn't get any jail time. Now, while he's out there, he meets and marries his second wife, Marlene Hayworth. Now, she believed Ed was an undercover government agent working for the CIA. Again, this is what he did his whole life. Dude was smooth. I mean... I guess. I couldn't get that out of my mouth without laughing or spewing. (laughs) She thought he worked for the CIA. He would do this his whole life, always carrying fake IDs, saying he worked for the FBI, the CIA, various local municipality police. Again, this is how he gained people's trust. This is how he got people to respect him. And this is what made the research really difficult. So, you know, and, and remember, again, he, he was wearing his Marine uniform when he was AWOL, passing bad checks. So this was a ruse that he was doing uh, his whole life. Now, again, while Edwards was in Portland, another double murder occurs. Again, this is at a lover's lane. November 26, 1960. 19-year-old Larry Payton and 19-year-old Beverly Allen were high school sweethearts. And you'll hear those names again, too. 
who plan to eventually marry. Again, we see a pattern here. 19 years old, high school sweethearts. Couple. It's always a couple. Now, they went missing. Peyton's car was found at Forest Park in northwest Portland with his body inside of it. Stabbed 23 times, and his skull was caved in. Beverly Allen was missing and was eventually found six weeks later in a ravine, 40 miles away, raped and strangled. Now, the day the car was found, the police were, obviously, they're investigating the scene, right? They got their yellow crime tape up. And who else do they see lurking around but Edward Wayne Edwards? He's just watching them. He's lurking around the scene. He's watching the police. He, you know, he makes himself known enough to the police that they actually detain him and question him about this murder. He's, he's, he's weird enough. He's lurking. Right? They think that's weird enough that this guy is showing up here that they actually do detain him for a little bit. Just because you're paying him. attention to things that you shouldn't be any of your business, that makes sense. I mean... There's there's no law against that, right? right. And obviously you're going to have gawkers. And, 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 and they often question people that are completely innocent. And he wasn't the only gawker. Right. But something about this guy right. made them say, we need to check this dude out. Now, the interesting thing with this double murder is that there's also a bullet hole in the windshield of the car. There's no bullet found in the car, or there's no gun found in the car. But Larry Payton was known to carry a gun. So the thought here is that Larry Payton shot at the attacker through the windshield of the car, but he was eventually overcome and killed. Now, five days later, five days after the car is found, Ed Edwards is arrested in Portland on unrelated charges of a parole violation of calling in false fire reports. What is with this guy and fire reports? Right. So Ed was on probation at the time, so they brought him in because of these false fire reports. They revoked his probation, and they bring him in. Now, while he's being booked, they notice that Edwards has a bullet wound in his arm. Shocking. Just <laughs> random bullet wound in his arm. Now, he told two different cops two different reasons of how that bullet wound got there. He told one that he accidentally shot himself during target practice. And he told another that his wife accidentally shot him in an argument. Because they had an argument, so she shot him in the arm. So Ed's looking like a pretty good suspect here with this double murder in Portland. Now, the thing is, he he pulls off a stunt. So they detain him. They're holding him in the jail. And this is a virtual carbon copy of the sweetheart murders that we mentioned already. Now, he pulls a stunt while he's in jail where he gets a friend of his wife. He gets a friend of his wife to call the jail and impersonate his probation officer saying that his probation detainer was lifted and he was to be released. And they fell for it. He walked out of prison. If you say it confidently, they'll believe you. And he skips town. And he was good at that. So by by November 1961, they're living in Texas. Ed and Marlene are living in Texas. Ed's working at a grocery store. He's using another alias, Gene Starr. And Portland PD realizes quickly that they messed up. Right? How the hell did we let this guy go? This is right around the time he becomes real famous. So they put him on the FBI's 10 most wanted. Now you've made it. And he he actually admitted at one point that he didn't wear a mask because he wanted to be famous. So you can see his MO this whole time if you haven't figured it out. Right. There's a pattern here that he says, right? He says in his book uh, he wanted to be famous. 
He says in his book he loved the attention, right? So there's a pattern that comes with an egomaniac, really. Like a lot of these guys, they want to be known for their killings. There's a, They have a purpose. He didn't necessarily have a feel, say that he had a purpose for these killings, like, a, like some of them do, but he wanted to be known, and this was the way he was going to do it. He's on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. His, his photo's all over the place. So they have to skip town, him and Marlene, and they have to leave Texas. And he does the same thing now he did what he did with his first wife. They're traveling all over the country, robbing gas stations, robbing stores. They actually they actually settle in Minnesota for, for some time, and he impersonates a doctor. The dude gets a job as a doctor, and he's like handing out prescription medication. To, it's, this guy's like, catch me if you can. Like yeah, he got, he got right. a, he, he became a doctor in right. Minnesota. You can lie well enough. You can convince anybody of anything. Now, because of his FBI 10 most wanted list, that makes its way to Minnesota and they skip town again. And he's actually recognized right after he leaves. Isn't that always how it works? Right after he skips town, he's known uh, that he was a fake. But now he's famous. He's got what he he's wanted. He's famous. To a point, but he's still robbing gas stations. He's still robbing stores. He goes back to Akron, and he robs a bank in his hometown. This is his hometown. He's on the FBI's most wanted list, and he robs a bank, not wearing a mask, and apparently nobody did recognize him. And he's eventually arrested again in Atlanta. It's all <laughs> you over the place. just said Ohio. Right. Yeah. Now he's in Georgia. On January 20th, 1962, captured and arrested with new wife Marlene. In Atlanta, Georgia. So he's shipped back to Ohio for the bank that he robbed in his hometown, which wasn't very smart. And he's sentenced to 16 years in Leavenworth. May 18, 1962. Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Very famous prison. Now, as what happens with his first wife, Marlene says that she was held against her will. Uh... The police let her go. Sure doesn't sound like she was held against her will. Neither did the first one. Like Bonnie and Clyde, as you said. Um, she divorces him. She's also pregnant when this happens. Um, and she moves back to Portland and actually loses that baby. I think that baby um, is lost in a miscarriage. I keep getting the willies throughout this episode. So He's a great, he's a very pleasant man. He, he gets sentenced to 16 years in Leavenworth. Marlene obviously divorces him. He gets out of prison after five years. He serves... Uh, in Leavenworth from 62 to 67. In 67, he's transferred to a much less secure prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and it, But this is where, somewhere in this five years, right? Somewhere in this five years, this is where his life changed. So in this five years, supposedly, Ed states that he's influenced by a prison guard who kind of... Turned uh, his life around. Like takes him under his wing, starts mentoring him. And basically guided him to a life of reform. So he's a, he's a new man. Ed is a new man. He's no longer a pedigree. Not Newman. New man. Right. He's out of prison after five years. He has a he has a new outlook on life. He's a changed man. He's going to be a productive member of society. No more stealing cars. No more ripping off banks. And they say people can't change. Yeah, this course. guy found his way. So he goes back to Akron. It does happen. Well, he's living proof. Well, was. Maybe maybe not, but it does happen. So he goes back to Akron, and he gets a job at a trucking company. A trucking company, Ed says, the job was set up by Jimmy Hoffa, whom he was in prison with 
at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And you'll find out he does brag about some of the people he was in prison with. Now, we do know this is true. This is verifiably true. He and Jimmy Hoffa were in Lewisburg prison together in Pennsylvania for six months. It's been proven by multiple sources. Now, we don't know if they knew each other. We don't know if they hung out at all. There's a lot of people in prison at the same time. Yeah. Right? And they don't necessarily get meet and greet times. Hey, that's everybody wear a name tag, and we're all just going to talk and, and get to know each other. That but doesn't necessarily happen in federal prisons. According to Ed, he knew Jimmy Hoffa well enough in prison that Jimmy Hoffa set him up with this job in Akron after he got out of prison. Now, remember that connection. Jimmy Hoffa was an American labor leader who served as president of International Brotherhood of Teamsters, one of the most controversial labor organizers of all, of all time. So he, he's, he's a former head of the Teamsters, and he had massive organized crime connections. Good or bad. Obviously, Ed here goes back to Ohio. He's working as a trucker. He's a productive member of society. That life of crime is behind him now. And he meets and marries his third wife, Kay Hederly, in July of 1968. This guy just keeps getting the women. Now, you know, again, he gets married to, to Kay, and this is when Ed remakes his life. He begins speaking to college students about prison reform. He begins speaking to college students about his own life story from this, you know, this terrible childhood growing up to, uh, I guess now this successfully out of prison, 35-year-old. I mean, he doesn't... Motivational speaker. He doesn't have any accomplishments other than the fact that he's out of jail. He's not even living in a van down by the river, though. He is a (laughs) motivational speaker. He is. And And he's not Chris Farley. And he is traveling the country as a motivational speaker talking about reforming your life. This is not a joke. He's kind of this rising from the ashes type story. He's traveling the nation, talking about this, uh, and and being a very well-known motivational speaker. He quits his trucking job because he's making a really nice living doing this. He appeared on radio and television all the time, over 70 times. As Scott mentioned, in, in 1972, he published his autobiography entitled The Metamorphosis of a Criminal. The true life story of Ed Edwards. He's a new man. He's he's doing great. So the, you know, we're in 1972 now, so we're 16 years past. Before we get into that, though, he was even on two game shows. Yeah. Yeah. To tell the truth and what's my line? Those are fairly common shows that people have heard of. So dude is famous now and and people like him and know him. And he's, he's just a good guy. <laughs> Number one, what is your name, please? My name is Ed Edwards. Number two. My name is Ed Edwards. Number three. My name is Ed Edwards. And here is the extraordinary story of Ed Edwards. I think you'll find it profitable. It says, I, Ed Edwards, was once on the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted criminals in America. Now I am a respected citizen in my community. Here's the story of my dramatic turnabout. As a young boy, I felt that the only way I could gain any recognition was to steal. Eventually, I committed armed robberies, impersonated a federal officer, and was sought for questioning about a double murder. I spent time in the federal penitentiaries in Leavenworth and Lewisburg. It was at the latter prison that I started vocational training and very slowly began to realize that I could still be somebody and return to my rightful and legal place in society. There is a tremendous need for communication between parents and their children, 
I stress this point in my book, which is titled Metamorphosis of a Criminal, signed Ed Edwards. <laughs> He is a quasi-celebrity, no right. doubt. And, and again, we're 16 years over the double murder in Great Falls that he may have been implicated may in. May have been. That's still unsolved. Uh, the Peyton Allen murders in Portland, in Portland, Oregon, two men were actually arrested and convicted of that crime. So he's no longer on the FBI 10 most wanted list. So he He's is, lost his fame that way, he's, but he's found new fame. He's living it up. It's too bad. He, he, he lost one fame but found another, so that's good for him. The book receives raving reviews. People love it. So now the rights to the book were actually purchased, and they were going to, it was going to be made into a movie. Ed Edwards' life of going from bad childhood to now out of prison is going to be made into a movie until it wasn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe he becomes worse. It didn't. There's a chance. It wasn't made into a movie. Ed's shtick, his story was told enough times that apparently people didn't really crave it anymore. They didn't want to hear it anymore. And the book, by 1977, was out of print. Now, by this time, Ed and Kay had five children. They're living in Doylestown, Ohio. And out of the blue, Ed comes home one day, packs up the family, says, we're out of here. We're leaving. Now... He packs the family up very abruptly, and right before he does that, conveniently, another double murder occurred in Doylestown, Ohio. The car of 18-year-old Judith Straub was found in a lover's lane, again, a lover's lane-type parking lot in Silver Creek Park in Doylestown, Ohio, August 7, 1977. She was thought to be with her boyfriend, 21-year-old Billy Lavaco. The two had been dating for eight months, and now they're missing. A search is organized, and the next day... Their bodies were found in tall weeds in the same general area of that parking lot. Both had been shot with a 20-gauge shotgun to the neck at close range. Now, Edwards and his family continued moving all around the country. According to Edwards' oldest daughter, April, she states that they would often leave, like, like they, they would be somewhere for six months to a year. That's it. They'd live in a city for six months to a year, and then her dad would abruptly move them, sometimes in the middle of the night. Which would make sense if you're in 12 different states and right. that short of time. So she estimates that she moved about 16 times before she graduated high school. Imagine that life. Military brats don't deal with it that quickly. Now, by the summer of 1980, they're living in a campground in Jefferson County, Wisconsin, where Ed was employed as a handyman at a wedding hall. As we already mentioned. Called the Concord House. Now, Ed is questioned in the murder investigation, uh, well, he's questioned in the, in the missing person investigation of Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew because he worked there, right? He also had a big bloody cut on his nose, and when he was questioned about it, he told the police that he, he attributed that to the gun kicking back while deer hunting. Deer hunting. This is August. There's no deer hunting in Wisconsin in August. Deer but yet hunting. somehow he got away with it the, because he was so confident in his lies. Yeah, the police apparently never questioned it. Well, and I, right, like you said, immediately you should think that's not the right time of year. But it was close enough that they just, and apparently he was just so good at selling it. Now, by the time Tim and Kelly's bodies are found two months later, obviously Ed and his family are long gone. 
they bolt town. And apparently they're never really thought of by those investigators again, you know, because his name apparently never came up again to try and find the maintenance man with the big cut on his face who mysteriously disappeared right after we interviewed him. Apparently no red flag there. No charges filed or anything. They just questioned him and let him go. So Ed, at this time, moves his family to Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh, where in 1982, the rental house they're living in goes up in flames. Slightly. So, so they Lightning move, strike. So, sure. So they move again. This time they go to Marietta, Georgia. He's eventually arrested again in Marietta, Georgia, by Pennsylvania authorities, because they realize that the house was torched. Didn't burn down on its own. By him. Oh. He, he lights his own houses on fire. Lights his own rental <laughs> rental home. It's not even his. It's a rental home. And he, he's imprisoned again in Pennsylvania for arson, eventually released in July of 1986. So he does a few years there. He gets out, and he moves the family all over town again, or all over the nation again. Through the and, 1990s, a lot of what he did remains a mystery. And eventually they wind up in Burton, Ohio. Now, while in Burton, Ohio, his kids are gone now, right? They're, they're, they're grown, they're out. Smart and left. In 1993, there was a letter to the FBI found in Edwards' papers, requested his criminal and history records for cities in 19 different states, and he claimed he was writing a new book about criminals he met while imprisoned. As we mentioned, he, he liked to brag about this because he wanted to be famous and he liked to showboat a little bit. He included Charles Manson, Jimmy Hoffa, and Tony Provenzano as people he met while he was in prison. He claimed that J. Edgar Hoover, quote, more or less gave me permission to proceed, unquote, after assuring him there was no bad press in the FBI about it. J. Edgar Hoover was in charge of the FBI at the time. So this guy was trying to write a book, or so, so-called, and he just wanted to get permission to talk about this stuff because, again, he just wanted this attention and notoriety. And and J. Edgar Hoover himself gave him permission to do so, huh? That's what he said. Right. Must be true. So now after a while of moving around, he winds up in Burton, Ohio. Now while in Burton, his, kids are, his five kids are grown now. They're gone. They move out of the house. And Ed begins to mentor a guy by the name of Danny Law Kleckner. Now, now Danny had been in foster care for much of his life. His parents, uh, he grew up in Cleveland and his parents died when he was 14. So he, he wound up living in group homes while he was growing up. Never really had any parental bonds with anybody after that. So, you know, seems like something that Ed could relate to, right? So Danny was a wrestler in high school and that's where Ed got to know him because Ed's sons were wrestlers in high school as well. So they wrestled together. He met Danny. Now after high school, Danny ran into some issues. He ran into some money issues. He got kicked out of his apartment. So Ed and Kay take him in. Now, he's an adult. No, he's like 20. He's in his early 20s. They take him in, and they become close. Ed and Danny, who he called Danny Boy, become close. And they actually petition the court for Ed and Kay to adopt this 24-year-old man. Foster son of 24 years. Danny Boy Edwards. Now, the courts say, no, you cannot ad- adopt this 24-year-old An adult? year old man. But they did let him change his name from Gluckner Sure, you can to change Edwards. your name to anything. Sure, you, want, you can right? change your name. So they didn't allow the adoption. So now Danny Law Gluckner becomes Danny Boy Edwards. And he is referred to as his foster son in everything. He is read. his foster son, right. yes. 
He, I mean, I guess in, in every other way other than legally, Ed treats him superficially, we might add, as a foster and, parent. And Danny you know? considered him as dead, which is a little more realistic and not superficial. Now, Danny Boy enters the Army in 1995 by the urging of Ed, right? Go into the armed forces. Now, when he's in, the, when he's in basic training, he injures his ankle, and he's about to get a medical discharge, but two days before that his official discharge was to take place, Danny winds up going AWOL. Why would you do that? Just trying to take after Dad. And then he turns up missing. Now, conveniently, after Danny moved in with Ed, Ed helped him take out a $50,000 life insurance policy with Ed as the beneficiary. Mere coincidence. And then another one for $200,000, which came with his enlistment into the Army. Hence, the urging Danny Boy to go into the Army. This $200,000 policy comes with a kicker, and that is it only kicks in after he finishes basic training. But he goes AWOL two days before he's supposed to be discharged from basic training because he gets injured and he turns up missing. And in April of 1997, his body is found buried in a shallow grave less than a mile from Edward's home. (laughs) Again, he's never implicated in any crime here. Now, Ed and Kay eventually move from Burton. They wind up living in a trailer park in Louisville, Kentucky in 2009 when they receive a knock on the door from Detective Sergeant Chad Garcia of the Jefferson County, Wisconsin Sheriff's Office. Now, in 2008, Wisconsin had received grant money to take another look at old unsolved cases. And I'm not sure where this, where this money came from. I don't know if this came with the feds or where this mo- grant money came from. But the state got a, got a grant to look at cold cases, unsolved murders, to put resources into these things. Because police, p- police departments don't have resources to look at 30, 40-year-old cases. I mean, we can we have enough to look at. Uh, you know, they're, there's enough shit going on today that they can't even get They're controlled by the government, so they don't have uncontrollable amounts of money. They get this grant, and the Hack and Drew murders in Jefferson County of 1980 was one of the cases that was chosen to be looked at. Now, this caught the attention of a woman in Ohio who had been doing her own research into cold cases. Cold cases in places where she had lived as a child with her family because there were so many of them. And her father would always abruptly pack them up and leave. And she never really understood why. I think we know this girl. This would be Ed and Kay's oldest child. I think we mentioned her already. Their daughter, April Bellaccio. Now, April saw a news article about the cold case in Jefferson County, about Tim Hack and Kelly Drew, and about the Concord House, which she recognized. She remembered the Concord House. She remembered living there. And then she saw a picture of the Concord House, and she recognized the Concord House. Obviously not having much contact with Dad anymore No, she point. Yeah, they, she didn't, they didn't know that he was a murderer. They knew he was a... You know, had a pretty good idea that he was a criminal. But, but I don't think she was a big fixture in his life at this point. But he was also an informant a lot for police departments where he left. Because, sure. know, he knew the shady parts of town, right? And he's covering himself mm-hmm. and making himself look like a good guy. So she sees this news report about this cold case in Concord and at the Concord house. So she calls up Jefferson County and she says, I think my dad is your killer. This informant guy who's been reformed (laughs) yes the motivational speaker from 1972 sure killed your who as you said is also an informant yeah 
Sounds uh, maybe the good guy. Now, Detective Chad Garcia again is the one that takes the call, and and he takes the information down, and he looks up Edward Ed Edwards, and he realizes, yeah, he was questioned when this happened. He did work here at the Concord House, and he did have a mysterious injury on his face, a bleeding nose that he said he got from deer hunting in August. And Chad realizes that ain't right. I don't even deer hunt, and I know that's not right. Now, by this time in nineteen in 2009, they had obtained DNA from Kelly Drew's clothes, seminal fluid from Kelly Drew's clothes. So obviously we're a lot farther down than we were in 1980. They have DNA evidence of the perpetrator, but they never had a match, right? They never knew where to look. So Chad Garcia takes a drive down to Louisville, and they find Edwards at his trailer, obese, sickly, on oxygen, 76 years old. Doesn't look like a killer, right? Looks like an old man just about ready to kick the bucket. Now, he denies everything, obviously. He gives another reason for his bloody nose. He said he was shooting pigeons in the, pigeons in the barn. So that's a discrepancy. Still hunting. And he also refuses a DNA swab. But as any well-trained, prepared detective is going right. to have. You're not driving down to Louisville, Kentucky from Wisconsin if you don't have your facts right. He has a court order for DNA. And he basically says, you can do this the easy way and give it to us now. Or we can take you downtown and you can give it to us there. And Edwards relents and gives him the DNA swab. And the very next day, he's arrested. It's almost like he didn't even, at that point, it was like relief. And he doesn't necessarily show remorse, but it's like he, it's again, the fame or the notoriety that he was searching for. He wanted to talk about it like a lot of these guys do. So on on July 30th, 2009, his final arrest was made, as Scott said, in Louisville, Kentucky, for the sweetheart murders, but... There will be more things attached to it. Right. So he's brought back to Wisconsin. He's dead to rights, right? He knows his DNA is on Kelly's clothes. He's done. He's captured. But he's got a bullshit story for this, right? He says that he and Kelly knew each other. You know, he he, he can't say I had nothing to do with it. He can't say he didn't know them, right? His it's his DNA, nature to lie. His DNA is on her clothes. But it's his nature to lie. So he makes up this story. He says he and Kelly knew each other. They had sex a lot. They were having sex that night in the car while Tim was inside the Concord house, and Tim came out and caught Even though them. they're a young couple, uh, yeah. and he's it's, not it's, anywhere near their age. And two other guys that Tim came out with actually killed him. I mean, it's just it's utter nonsense. Just literal gibberish right. Right. because he doesn't know how to not lie. But what he wanted, though, because he knew he was caught, he wanted the death penalty. But Wisconsin doesn't have the death penalty, so he's not going to admit to this crime. Right? There's nothing you can do for me that I want in Wisconsin. And he doesn't want the death penalty because he's courageous and you know he wants to uh, you know, pay for the crimes. Right, the he's sins not that he trying did. to be a hero. He's dying. He's got leukemia. He wants to, heart it to end and he wants to stop feeling the pain. So <laughs> even that is a selfish act. He, he knows the, you know, his last few years or months or whatever he's got left on earth is going to be grueling. Because he's and a he big, mir- miserable slob he's a of, of skin. So this is why he wants the death penalty. But Wisconsin doesn't have the death penalty. So And we don't mean to make it sound like we're not impressed with him at this point, if we haven't been done telling the story. But we're not impressed with him at this point, so... We're going to maybe impart our opinions. 
So he wants the death penalty. He can't get it in Wisconsin, so he's not going to admit or confess to this crime. But he will admit to another crime. Ohio has the death penalty. So Ed Edwards confesses to the murder, the double murder, of Billy Lavaco and Judith Straub. And this is the first one he actually admits to. In Doylestown, Ohio in 1977. So he confesses to this crime, and he thinks, there it is, I'm going to get the death penalty. But he's got a problem. Ohio does have the death penalty, yes. But there was a moratorium on it from 1977 to 1981. So any crime committed in those four years, you're no longer eligible for the death penalty. So he still couldn't get it. So he confesses to another crime. His foster son, Danny Boy. His 24-year-old foster son. 1996. Now... If you remember the $200,000 life insurance policy that he took out through the Army, or Danny Boy took out through the Army, that would only kick in after Danny Boy finishes basic training. And that was committed in Ohio, too, for the record. But. Now, Ed's plan was to have Danny Boy finish basic training, come home on leave, and then Ed would murder him. This was planned from the beginning. <laughs> From the very beginning of telling, of taking him in and saying, oh, why don't you go ahead and join the army? This was planned. He, never, he planned to murder this cat the whole really way. He never really bounded with him. So his, his plan, again, is for Danny Boyd to finish basic training, come home on leave, and then Ed would murder him. There was a problem. Danny Boy got injured. Danny Boy got injured during basic training, and he was going to get a medical discharge before basic training was over, which would negate the policy. And Ed would be out $200,000. But going AWOL and then turning up dead, well, that would keep that policy intact. Which is why he convinced him to go AWOL, because Danny Boy did not want to do that. So he convinces Danny to go AWOL. So, I mean, this just tells you that the monster that this guy was. So Ed right. Ed lures Danny Boy out behind a cemetery about a mile from the home. And he had a duffel bag with him, and he put it on the ground, and he asked Danny to bend down and pick something out of that duffel bag. It's a, it's a woods not far from their house in Burton, Ohio. So Danny bends over, and he grabs something out of the duffel bag, and Ed puts two shotgun blasts in his head. Left him in a shallow grave, as Scott mentioned before. Eventually, that he was discovered by a hunter. Now, the, the other problem is here is that that policy had a statute of limitations on it after going AWOL. So Ed needed that body to be found, because if he wasn't found before that statute of limitations was up, well, then he was just AWOL, and again, Ed would be out of that money. So Ed would go back to the burial spot. Which explains the shallow grave to begin with. Sure, because he wanted that body to be found, but right. it wasn't being found. So Ed would go back to that burial spot, and he would scatter the bones. He picked, I mean, this is his foster son. He picked up his skull and he threw it in somebody else's field. He took the femur and obviously the bigger bones and he threw them so they would be more easily visible. So the foster son, well, from his perspective. Pawn. Right. The foster son saw dad as a foster father. Yes. But foster son was not the right term for this monster. Yeah. He was a dollar sign. He was, he was exactly an insurance policy. So he, he throws the, the bones around, and, and obviously it works. Somebody does find the bones. They find out that Once he again, was, a hunter. They find out that he was murdered. They try to pin it on his old roommate who kicked him out of the apartment, which was all the plan to begin with, and Ed gets $200,000. So he confesses to this, so he does get the death penalty. 
But for, bef- for that reason. For that reason. He's already been sentenced to life. So he does get the death penalty for the murder of Danny Boy. He, he winds up pleading guilty to these five murders. Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew, Billy Lavaco and Judith Straub, and Danny Boy Edwards, or, or Danny Law Glockner. So he gets the death penalty for Danny Boy. He pleads guilty to all of these. There's no trials. He pleads, he winds up, he never confesses to Kelly, Drew, and Timothy Hack like he did with Lavaco and Straw, but he pleads guilty. So we still don't exactly know what happened in that murder, but he pleads guilty. So he does get the death penalty, but before his execution date, he dies on his own in prison with all the diseases and whatnot that he had in 2011. So these are the five murders that we know he did do. And his execution was scheduled for August 31st, 2011. On April 7th, 2011, he died on death row in Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, at the age of 77 of, quote-unquote, natural causes. Now this is not the end of the Ed Edwards story. (laughs) There's a lot more. Not even close. It should have been, and maybe it should be, really. Right. And But it is not the end of the Ed Edwards story. Now, John Cameron, a guy named John Cameron, who is a former cold case detective in Great Falls, Montana. Where you might be familiar with him. There was a double murder there in 1956. So John Cameron is a cold case detective, and he's looking back at, obviously unsolved murders in Great Falls, and he comes across the Lover's Lane murders, which is very similar to a lot of the other murders that we've talked about, and two of them, which Edwards was convicted of, the Sweetheart murders in Wisconsin, and then the murders of uh, Billy Lavaco and Judas Straub in Doylestown, Ohio. Now, Cameron writes a book in 2014, and it's called It's Me, Edward Wayne Edwards, The Serial Killer You Never Heard Of. That book is made into a documentary in 2018. It's called It Was Him, The Many Murders of Ed Edwards. And this is basically Cameron's theory, is that Ed Edwards is the perpetrator of virtually every famous every murder. Crime you've ever heard of in the last 70 that you've years. heard of in America since he's been alive. So according to, to Cameron, you know, this is just a small list of what John Cameron says. According to Cameron, Ed Edwards killed... Lacey Peterson. He killed the three eight-year-old boys of the West Memphis Three case. He kills Teresa Halbach. He kills Martha Moxley, who actually, uh, there was a member of the Kennedy family, Michael Skakel, that was convicted of her murder. He kills Chandra Levy. Remember her? Chandra Levy and Gary Condit. He kills Adam Walsh, the son of John Walsh. He kills John Vinay Ramsey. He kills Jimmy Hoffa. Remember that connection? He kills Marilyn Shepard, who is the wife of Sam Shepard, which was uh, of the fugitive fame, and many, many more, including Elizabeth Short, who's better known as the Black Dahlia, in 1947. And, oh yeah, he's also the Zodiac. He committed the Atlanta child murders, and he's probably D.B. Cooper. But other than that, not a whole lot going on. Really, everything of of Cameron's uh, hypothesis centers around him being the Zodiac killer. Obviously, the Zodiac... Now, the Zodiac's MO was killing couples at Lover's Lanes, right? Obviously very similar to things that we know Ed Edwards has done. 
Now, the Zodiac did leave two survivors. And one survivor, it's kind of known today that the Zodiac, and this is erroneous in my opinion, it's known today that the Zodiac told his victim that he, in one of these cases, in one of his uh, murdering sprees, uh, the, the survivor says that the killer told him that he had just broken out of Deer Lodge Prison in Montana and he killed a guard and ran out of the prison. Remember, Ed Edwards was in Deer Lodge Prison. And that's not even necessarily true because this, this survivor of the Zodiac, when he, when he gave that report, he's in a hospital bed. He's heavily sedated. He's probably souped up on morphine, right? And he's being interviewed by the police. And the the survivor says, when they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get a description of the killer, and the survivor says, he says, quote, because I just got out of some prison in Montana. I don't know what the name of it is. Feathers? Do you know what the name of it is? I'll see if it sounds familiar. Fern or Feathers? It's some double name, like Fernlock or something. That's what he told the police. Unquote. So the police are saying, Lock? Could it be Lodge? And he says, yeah, yeah, it was probably Lodge. And the police are like, could it be Deer Lodge? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's Deer Lodge. So he's just bullshitting. And so we know today that the Zodiac escaped from Deer Lodge prison based on that? No. We don't even know which prison... (laughs) We didn't know if he escaped. How, how do we even know he, he said Montana? Interesting thing is that the Zodiac killed people like we know Ed Edwards did, is an M.O., right? But at the same time, John Cameron says that he killed all these other people, like the Atlanta Child Murders, he's D.B. Cooper, Black Dahlia, which doesn't match that M.O. at all. So he meets the Zodiac's M.O., but then when you question Cameron about how, how does his M.O. match up with all these other murders... And he says, well, he doesn't have an M.O. That's what makes him so... You can't have it both ways. But he did have an M.O. Is he an M.O. M.O. or does he, he not have an M.O.? He very much did. You can tell if you followed his story as we have. Now, the Black Dahlia, she's murdered in 1947 when Ed Edwards would have been 13 years old. Now, the connection there is that in the investigation of the murder of the Black Dahlia, the police were always looking for a car with Ohio plates that they were never able to find. But she was found naked, severely mutilated, severed into two pieces at the waist. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles and drained of blood, leaving skin pallid white. I mean, this was a ritualistic murder, and he didn't necessarily do that. He didn't take the time, because he had way too much other stuff to do by the sounds of it. He's 13 years old. He's especially at that. He's age. in Ohio at this time. Right. And just because there's a car that they were looking for in the Black Dahlia. And even if the age, even if he was born in 1928, he's 17. To be in Los Angeles, he nothing else in his past says that he would have been in that area, and nothing else in his past says that he was this ritualistic as far as severing the body at the waist and doing these and and draining of of its blood. I mean, that's that's a sick, twisted human being, which he was, but he had different motives, so it just doesn't sound like he connects. So he says that, that you know, he, he connects Edwards because they're looking for a car with Ohio plates in the investigation of the Black Dahlia. They were never able to find that. Ed Edwards is from Ohio, <laughs> even though yeah. he was only 13. Right. And also, 
Elizabeth Supp- right. Elizabeth Short is is there's photos of Elizabeth Short with an unidentified person. These are photos taken from a photo booth, clear, and they're all over online. You can find them wherever. And she was 22 at the time of her death. Right. And so this she's taken pictures in a photo booth with a man, an unidentified man who they were always looking for during that investigation, and they were never able to ID this guy. Even if he was 17. And Cameron says that this guy is Edwards. Even if he was 17, he's still five years younger than her. If his date is, as we said, in 1933, he's 13. There's no way this aspiring actress is with a 13-year-old. The guy in these photos is no is doesn't even look like him. Doesn't even look like Edwards. Doesn't look like like him. Doesn't, and he looks like older than a 17-year-old, much less 13. Now there are experts. Obviously, there is on the black. The black dye is obviously one of the most famous. You know, true crime cases still unsolved is. to this day. There are experts that work on this. So one of the most, one of the foremost experts on the Black Dahlia murder is a columnist in Los Angeles named Larry Harnish. They interview him. He's actually in Cameron's documentary, and this is one thing that I give Cameron credit for: is whether you agree with him or not, he puts you in his documentary. Harnish says, "Quote: When I heard his research consisted of Google, I thought." Oh, no. His so-called source material? It's just bonkers. It's really flying saucer and men from Mars stuff. I kind of feel sorry for him. I'm sitting down and talking to him. There was no question in my mind. Does he believe everything he says? Yes, he does. Is he terribly, terribly wrong? Yes, he's terribly, terribly wrong. He really does believe what he's saying. Now, the Black Dahlia is not the first murder that he attributes to Edwards either. He's got him killing people in Chicago in 1945 when he's 10 years old or 12 years old, cutting them apart like the Black Dahlia. Now, in regards to Teresa Hallbach, obviously known well in these parts um, from Manitowoc and the subject of making a murder on Netflix, this all goes back to him being the Zodiac too. Cameron believes that Edwards is the Zodiac. Now, the Zodiac had communications with a San Francisco Chronicle uh, columnist named Paul Avery. And the Zodiac sent Paul Avery a Halloween card in the mail, kind of taunting him, as killers often do. Cameron says that Ed Edwards targeted Stephen Avery based on the similar name to Paul Avery and killed Teresa Holbeck on Halloween because that coincides with the Halloween card that he sent Paul Avery back in the 60s. Now, there is a scene in Making a Murder where the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, is shown, I think it's the lobby of the courthouse, and there's an unidentified man standing behind Ken Kratz that does look a lot like Ed Edwards. And this is part of of Cameron's... I saw that photo. It It does look like him. It looks like him. Now... A thinner version from what he was at the end. Still a hefty guy, though. Right. Now... Cameron was saying, you know, five years ago, this is definitely Ed Edwards, and I'm 99.9% sure he killed Teresa Halbach and, and framed Stephen Edwards, or Stephen Avery. But now he's saying that that man is not Ed Edwards, but he doesn't have him identified, and the man's never identified. So the question is, how does he, why does he say that now? He doesn't why know do who he is. Why do you change your mind? Because he probably found out, even though he said that Ed Edwards was within an hour of Manitowoc when this happened, it's likely that he found out Ed Edwards was not in this area. But then why why say it in the first place? On the other hand, if you're going to say it in the first place, stick to it. Now, Kathleen Zellner, who is Stephen Avery's lawyer right now, obviously she's doing everything she can to get a new trial for him. 
She's with the Innocence Project. She does good work. I don't think this was a smart case for her to take on, but that's for a different show. She says, quote, I have nightmares that make more sense, unquote, than Ed Edwards being the murderer of Teresa Hollenbach. It just goes to show that a lot of these claims were possibly sensationalism. Right. And and part of his book, just to sell it. And I don't mean to discredit some guy. I don't even know. My personal opinion, it just seems like a little ridiculous to try to claim Ed Edwards is connected to some of these, some of the stories where pregnant women were killed by obviously their husbands or somebody close to them where he wouldn't, Ed Edwards had nothing to do with it. So you're just maybe trying to sell a book. And it's unfortunate that somebody would do that. And he uses Ed Edwards' book, Metamorphosis of a Criminal, basically saying that's all written in code. And that's kind of a big, it's almost kind of like a a massive confessional for all of the murders that he committed from the 40s until that was written in the 70s. And it's, it's all these fantastical claims from Cameron. So, you know, my I, Cameron's not a stupid guy. I just read a quote before where somebody was saying that um, they think that he really believes what he's saying. I'm not so sure about that. And what you just said, Mickey, you think that this was done for sensationalistic reasons. I, I agree with that. I think this is done in bad faith. I think that's, that this is us as true crime content consumers. And there's a lot of us out there. Serial killers are big, big money. Everything on Netflix is about serial killers. It's just these dark, twisted concepts that I believe in, to some degree, is people trying to rationalize their own existence and feel better about themselves. How complicit are we? Well, even, you know, Mickey and I, we're content creators. We talk about this stuff. Yeah, we're talking about it right now. This is what makes me wonder about what what we as a society do. I'm, I'll fully admit I'm a hundred, I'm, I'm, super interested in true crime and it's only good to question yourselves as we've talked about you got to question everything including yourself he's he's making somebody that we know have has killed at least five people and i you know i, I think we can say that the, the the first murder that cameron tries to pin on him the double murder in great falls that's been solved in 2021 dna evidence proved that it was not at Edwards. Unfortunately, solved doesn't necessarily mean correct every time, but I think with our technology and... Seminal fluid is pretty hard to do. Right. Sometimes people are framed. Sometimes the wrong person is accused. But in this case, I don't I don't think Ed Edwards had anything to do with it. I mean, we're, we're trying to... We're making these, these serial killers glorified heroes. Right. We're making these guys superhuman. You know, we're talking about somebody who's supposed to have a murder spree that last 50 years, talking about every famous murder that you've ever heard of. It's almost physically impossible that one person could commit all these murders. And we've proven he's, as we've mentioned, he's, I don't know that he was so intelligent that he could have pulled all this off no, anyway. No, and and the, I guess this is another issue that I have is when you listen to podcasts now about Ed Edwards, they're not talking about Kelly Drew. They're not talking about Timothy Hack. They're talking about... The people he actually killed. They're, they're talking about Ed Edwards being the Atlanta child murderer. Right. They're talking about Ed Edwards killing Sam Shepard's wife in the 1950s. And it doesn't, it just, the M.O. was different. It doesn't make sense. He just, he doesn't pertain to these stories. I just think if, 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 if this was plausible, if, these, if any of these murders were plausible, like the Great Falls double murder was. Right. Well, that's been proven that it wasn't. It him. makes sense, right. And he, he didn't do that. I could see 
pushing these theories. If these are plausible, they're not even plausible. Right. They don't they, even make know, sense. They don't apply. We're making a guy that that killed five people into this ghost. Eventually, somebody's going to want to be better than that. I just I think we're making a mistake as creators, as consumers. And I don't know what the right answer is. We're clearly complicit, I think, in things that John Cameron and people like him are doing where they try to glamorize and heroize these serial killers who are deplorable people. And the attention goes right from the victim then, right? Like, we're not talking about Billy Lovaco. We're talking about Ed Edwards being the Black Dahlia killer. It's virtually impossible. So, you know, again, I don't know what the right answer is. But I think any anytime, and I think Mickey and I, I think we've done a good job. I, I, I guess I like, I like to think we do. And, the best job we can. We you know, when we talk about these cases and, the, you know, the true crime cases that we've done to keep focus on the people that are forgotten all the time, which is the victims. These are the nameless, faceless people. I mean, the two main names in true crime, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, what did they kill, 50 people between them? How many can we name? Well, we know their names. Sure. I don't know the answer. I'm not going to stop watching true crime. I'm not going to stop talking about No, it's interesting. It's fascinating. We, we, I mean, again, I, we don't want to glamorize these monsters. I'm as guilty as anyone for watching this stuff, but... I think we have a duty as creators and as consumers to call out charlatans when we see them. We, we need to check ourselves. Like we've been saying throughout certain episodes, we, we need to be responsible for who we are. And if we're if we're trying to be decent human beings and righteous as much as we can, we, we need to find a way to get the word out without allowing these people who want to have this notoriety to get this fame that they're seeking by hurting everyone else. Amen, brother. <laughs>